From the hills of West Virginia to the studios of Music Row, this man has played on more records than Carter has liver pills. He's an author, a Grammy winner, and a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. And even better than that, he's a new friend to our show, and in this episode, he tells his story to Coal Mountain Cow, Cheeto, and myself, producer Steve. We're glad you joined us, so y'all pull up a chair and say hey to Mr. Charlie McCoy. And broadcasting once again from high top the Northeast Tower of Peach Castle in downtown beautiful South Coal Mountain. It is The Crossing where the music meets some memories. I am Coal Mountain Cow along with my partner Chris Cheatham and the producer Good Doctor Steve Thompson bringing you quite the stellar episode tonight. Chris would be talking to us right now but I have sent him up on top of the tower because we had to make a phone call as pandemic wise goes. You know we can't have anybody in the studio so... Chris is dialing up Nashville, Tennessee at this very moment. Chris, can you get can you get anything going up there? Kevin, I'm up here now. I've uh, climbed to the very top of the tower and trying to face this thing north uh, to hit Nashville. I had to take my mask off because, I mean, I ain't got nobody around me. I'm at least 100 feet away from anyone in, in Coal Mountain area. But I've uh, faced this thing towards Nashville, and we're about to dial up a... a, a Country Music Hall of Famer, seven-time Grammy nominee. He won a Grammy. Gal. Charlie McCoy is on the show tonight, folks. Chris, if you can get that handle cranked a little faster, and we'll see if we can get him on. Y'all stand by. And good evening, Mr. Charlie McCoy. Have you got a copy on us, brother? <laughs> I sure do. How are y'all doing down there? We're doing great. We hope uh, this pandemic... First and foremost, finds you and your family well. We are all, we are all well, and 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 you guys and me tonight, we are practicing social distancing <laughs> to the utmost. That's for that's a, for sure. Now we're talking to Charlie. Charlie, we just uh, we we already kind of cleared up. You live you live in Nashville right now. We're calling from uh, the the great city of Cumming, Georgia, um, about twenty miles north of Atlanta, and like well, like you said, you're in Nashville. Yep. Uh, I've been I've been here since 1960. 1960. Yep. Well, let's go back and start from the very beginning. 1941. Charlie McCoy is born in Virginia, West Virginia. I'm West, sorry. West Virginia. Oh, West Virginia. Oak Hill, I believe. <laughs> That's right, Oak Hill, and Oak Hill's claim to fame is that it's the town where Hank Williams was found deceased in the back of the car on the way to Canton, Ohio, for a New Year's Day concert. I did not know that was, I couldn't rem remember that city. I knew he was headed to Canton, Ohio, but I forgot where the where they yeah, actually discovered I mean, that. Oak Hill has 2,000 people in it, you know. It's a wide place on the road. And back then, I was only 11 years old. I didn't even know who he was, you know. I didn't have a clue. But when I came to Nashville, I found out real quick who he was and how important he was to country music. He was a point of reference for everything up there back then, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So from West Virginia, you uh, later moved to uh, Miami, you said. What got y'all down there? Uh, well, uh, I was a sickly child. Uh, in the first grade, I was in the hospital 17 days. I was anemic real bad. And, and uh, my mom and dad split up real early. My dad moved to Florida. He had been stationed there in the Navy, and he loved it. And 
and uh, he said the last straw. He was living over in Beckley, and uh, one uh, Christmas day, the snow was so deep, and it was the only place in town open to get coffee was the bus station, and he walked a mile through the waist-deep snow to get a cup of coffee, and he said on his way back, he said, I'm done with this. (laughs) (laughs) So he moved to Florida, and then uh, when my health was not good, uh, he and my mom worked out a deal, and so I went to Florida for school and then came back to West Virginia every summer. Where it was a little bit uh, warmer, when it got warmer. Yeah. Yeah. So around age eight, you took up a little instrument called the harmonica, I believe it is. Yeah, uh, I saw an ad in a comic book that said, you can play harmonica in seven days of your money back. <laughs> in 50 cents and a box top. Now, that was 1949, you know. 50 cents for a single mom, you could buy something for 50 cents back then. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, it was a, I'm sure that, you know, she was reluctant to let me have it, but she did. And I remember, uh, you know, of course, the mail was like, it was like, it was coming over on a, on a wagon, you know, and it took forever, it seemed. And when that thing got there and I opened the box and got it out, you know, got it out. After about a day, my mom said, uh, could you take it outside? <laughs> Ain't it amazing how you can remember things like that? Nothing but noise. Yeah. You know? Ain't it amazing? Amazing how you can remember things like that. Because my wife says, I can't remember to take out the trash, but I can remember something monumental like that back in my life when I was eight years old. But nowadays, well, I can't even do the trash. Well, I heard the reason for that is that your head gets full and everything else bounces off then. Makes perfect good that, sense. I'm going to remember yeah. that. I'm going I'm to put that in my pocket and remember it next time my wife brings <laughs> it up. I want uh, Charlie, did you come from a musical family? Or, I mean, you think it was just something, a bug that just jumped up and bit you alone i had a on my mother's side uh two of her brothers could play the guitar a little bit and one played the piano my grandmother on my mother's side played piano in church uh nobody in my dad's side was musical at all uh so this was uh i, I don't know it's one of those things you know they say that uh sometime in future generations something comes Something shows again. Yeah, I, it must have been from I don't know, but uh, yeah. So and that same year I got the harmonica, I got a guitar. Oh, and, okay. uh, I was all I was all into the guitar. To be honest with you, uh, until I was sixteen, I, I wasn't very serious about the harmonica. What was the uh, whenever you got the harmonica? I guess that was the first instrument you learned how to play. What was the first song you learned? Way down upon the Swanee River. Oh yeah. And then whenever you there got the a, when you got the guitar, what was the first song you learned on it? Do you recall? Yeah, they, they uh, there was a little piece. After I'd gone around the house making noise for two days, my mom <laughs> discovered a little piece of paper in the box with some songs on it and and numbers and breath directions, and she figured out, oh, this must. She looked at the harmonica. Th- there's numbers over these holes. <laughs> yeah, so so she's the one who told me, this is what I think this means, you know. <laughs> and so I, I did, and I learned to play four songs, actually, off of that piece of paper. Uh, and my that's when, I guess, there was a clue that I had a 
pretty good ear, you know. So I guess I you play uh, uh, way down on the Suwannee River. Uh, oh, Susanna, Polly Wally Doodle, <laughs> you know, all Stephen Foster, and then uh, My Country Tis of Thee. Chris, he asks that to every guest we have, whether they can play an instrument or not. He asks them what the first song they ever learned how to play was. <laughs> And a lot of times we we've had we've had some uh, some pretty well known drummers come on here and piano players and I always ask what the first song they learned how to play on the guitar and they said have you not paid attention to this interview and uh, but with you um, you know about every instrument there is don't you you play a ton of instruments I do I, I don't play uh, fiddle banjo or steel guitar yet but I play <laughs> I play trumpet tuba. Uh, saxophone, uh, keyboard, guitar, bass, vibraphone, like mallets, you know, uh, marimba, uh, vibraphone. Yeah, which is, all of this has been uh, really helpful for me in my career as a studio musician. Uh, but I must say, without the harmonica, I never would have gotten the door. So with the... Uh the guitar and taking up the bass and all that, I see that you formed a little rock group back in the day. And you yeah, had a, uh, I well, guess this... Well, I was this... in one in Florida, too, but when I got to Nashville, I met uh, another West Virginian named Wayne Moss, who was a fantastic studio musician later. He also was the founder of two bands in Nashville, one called Area Code 615 and one called Barefoot Jerry. And he owns the studio, Cinderella Studio, where I do most of my recording. But anyway, uh, yeah, we had a rock and roll band, and uh, it was a fantastic band. The drummer was named Kenny Buttry. He played, he ended up being a great session guy. He put in a heart of gold with Neil Young, uh, Margaritaville. He played on the Dylan stuff that I played on. You know, he, he was a fantastic drummer. So we, we had a very good band. You know, I'm, I'm in, I've got this guitar, and I get an electric guitar, and we're in the middle 50s, which is when rock and roll hit the radio. Yes, sir. You know, Bill Haley and the Comets. Yeah. Uh, Carl Perkins, you know, uh, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. And I was, like, really into this music, and... I heard Chuck Berry, and I said, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. So I just started doing everything I could to play like him, and I learned his songs. So one night I was playing at a country music dance, and Mel Tillis came in, and he heard me sing Chuck Berry, and he told me afterwards that if I went to Nashville, he could probably get me on records as a singer. And, you know, I'm... 17 years old it's like showing a steak to a wolf oh yeah so the day after high school i drive up to nashville and i went to his office where his office was and uh i went in and told the receptionist who i was and i was here to see mel dills and she said oh he's out of town <laughs> <laughs> now was that that florida connection because mel was from florida also wasn't he Okay. Yeah, well, he had, he was in Miami that night. Uh, they did a show, a, a, a package show at the Dade County Auditorium, and then they came over to this country dance after the show. That that's how that all happened. But anyway, uh, so his she said I told him what Mel had told me. She said, "Well, I'm going to let you talk to his manager," and his manager was 
Jim Denny, who was the owner of Cedarwood Publishing, and he is in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And so uh, he came out and he said to me, Mel told me about you. I couldn't believe it, you know. And he said, do you want some auditions? And without even <laughs> hearing me, he said, I, I said, well, yeah. He called Chet, uh, Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley and booked two auditions for me. And here I go into Chet Atkins' office. I, number one, I don't even know who he is. <laughs> But I go in there and I plug up my guitar and I play and sing Johnny Be Good. <laughs> and he says to me, well, son, I think you're pretty good, but we just don't do this kind of music here. <laughs> so, you know, okay, that I struck out there. So then I went to Owen Bradley's studio and I did the same song. He, had, he said the same thing. I think you're pretty good, but, you know, we're just not doing that here. And I, so I'm like, geez, I drove eight. 800 plus miles and mm -hmm. uh, you know this was kind of a bummer <laughs> but then Owen Bradley said to me I'm having a session this afternoon would you like to come and watch and I thought oh, uh, yeah okay okay you know I wasn't still really sure about what's going on so I came back to his studio at 1.30 that day the session was supposed to start at 2 and I was first one there and it was just him and the engineer and me in there. And it, there used to be, uh, this was the Bradley studio, the one we call the Quonset Hut. Yes, sir. And there used to be, at one end of the room, there was a stairway that went up diagonally up the wall to an office up there. And he said to me, if you'll sit about halfway up this stairway and watch this session, you'll see what we're doing here. And I said, okay. So I go up there, I'm sitting there, you know, you're 18 years old and you think you know everything, right? And I'm looking around. Okay, there's a piano. There's a set of drums. There's a lot of microphones. Around. Wait a minute. There aren't any music stands. I was troubled by this. I, where are the music stands? So then the musicians start coming in. You know, they look, when you're 18, everybody looks old, right? Mm -hmm. God, look at these old guys. Then the artist comes in. 13-year-old Brenda Lee. Mm. And she was tiny, you know, and I'm looking at I'm looking at this and I can't believe what I'm looking at. This is a kid. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little kid, you know. And they played a song, uh, played a disc. Uh, the demos in those days a lot of time were on a disc. Uh -huh. They played a disc. It didn't look like the musicians were halfway paying attention you know and buddy when i heard that first playback it was magic and i said right then i don't want to be a singer i want to do this you want to be a musician i want to be a studio musician yeah. man yeah okay so so i go back to my hotel that night i can't hardly sleep because i'm so excited about what i've seen and heard that night jim denny calls me and said there's another session tomorrow morning. You want to go to that too? <laughs> Charlie, what, I mean, why do you think they was being so nice to you? Just because Mel had put in such a good word for you? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. So I went back to the session the next day and it was for an artist, Carl Butler. Uh huh. And the Jordanaires were on that session. 
And uh, I met the leader of the Jordanaires, Neil Matthews. And he was using, this is 1959, he was using the Nashville number system. His charts, his music, you know, it's a, it's a shorthand way we have to write music here. Mm-hmm. He was the only one in town that was using it. And I had had a ton of music theory already. And it wasn't exactly what I studied, but I, I understood it. I, I could see what it was. And I thought, my gosh, this is so brilliant, you know. This is why they so didn't have no music Miami, entered the University of Miami, lasted almost a year, and uh, couldn't stand it. <laughs> yeah. Broke my father's heart, dropped out of college, went back to Nashville. This is 1960 now. And uh, my father finally forgave me when later on down the road when I introduced him to Dolly Parton. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> I would forgive you too. Yeah. Now, yeah. what about. Now, you had a, 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 a short career as a recording artist, though, didn't you? Well, I, you know, it never was my intent to be a recording artist. I was uh, living with a songwriter. Actually, he's a like Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame guy named Kent Westbury. He wrote Love on a Hot Afternoon for Gene Watson. And so, and, and a lot of other big chart records, you know. So songwriters would come over to his house every day and they would write together. And I was fascinated by this. I just sit around and watch and listen. And one day he's working on a song and he said to me, Hey, uh, why don't you, uh, why don't you get your harmonica and play along with, with us on this just for the fun of it? And I said, okay. So I started doing that. And, uh, he said that I'm, I'm going to, Ask Mr. Denny if you can play. Denny was his manager, too. Yes, sir. And he was his publisher. I'm going to ask Mr. Denny if you can play on the demo. This really sounds great. Okay, well, a couple of uh, weeks pass. Jim Denny calls and asks to speak to me. And he said, uh, I just got a call from Chet. He's recording an unknown singer from Sweden named Ann Margaret. And he wants you to play exactly what he what you played on that demo. My first real session, right? On the harmonica. Yeah. With well, so Ann Margaret. In there, I'm pretty nervous. Right. You know? uh, in my autobiography, I explained it. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. There was God, Chet Atkins. Right. His disciples, the Nashville A-Team musicians, his heavenly choir, the Anita Kerr singers, and there was an angel, 20-year-old Ann Margaret. Talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good thing. I'm glad I knew what to do already. <laughs> Did you have to turn your back and uh, play fa- uh, not facing her? Yeah, but every other musician in the place was distracted, too. I can tell you that. Oh, I'm sure they were. But, yeah. So, But the be- at the end of that session... The bass player, Bob Moore, walked over to me and he said, you free Friday? <laughs> this, was, this was in May of 61. Yeah. You free Friday? I said, yeah, I was free the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he said, come back to this studio. I'm recording Roy Orbison. Whoa. I was a huge fan already. I'd heard, you know, uh, 
Only the Lonely and Blue Angel and those great records that he recorded. So we went back and we did a record called Candyman. It was a huge hit and my phone started ringing. And 59 years later, it's still ringing. Thank God for that. <laughs> now, Roy, I got off the subject. You were asking about being an artist. Yes. Okay, so another another song that Kent Westbury, and we wrote this together, and it was kind of a rock and roll song, and uh, he said, I'm going to ask Mr. Denny if you can sing the demo, because this is not my style at all. Kent was a, like a country singer, you know, Ray Price kind of singer. So I sang this song about a month. Denny called me and he said, I just got a call from Archie Blyer from Cadence Records. We sent him that song, you know, for, for one of his other artists or something. He wants to record you. What? <laughs> <laughs> he wants to record you as an artist singing that song. And I thought, wow, I, you know, this is before I'd done any studio work. Right. So we went in and recorded the song. And uh, it was uh, it was called Cherry Berry Wine, and it made it to number ninety nine one week in the Billboard Pop Charts, mm -hmm. and then dropped out. Hey, you I cracked the top one hundred. Yeah, ninety nine for one week. Well, hold so, that thought anyway. because it just so happens that producer Steve Thompson has that Cadence record on his turntable right now, and we're going to go out of this segment as he puts a little needle to wax. We're going to listen to a little bit of Charlie McCoy singing Cherry Berry Wine, number 99, with a bullet. You're listening to The Crossover, where the music meets the memories. With an anvil. An anvil. <laughs> Cherry Berry Wine Makes my head start reeling Give my heart a funny feeling Like I've never, ever felt before Drinking cherry berry wine. Eve told Adam, those apples over there are so fine. Poor Adam couldn't see that it was the wrong tree, cause he was drinking cherry berry wine. Cherry berry wine makes my Hey, this is Joe Bonzel with the Oak Ridge Boys, and you're listening to Chris and Cal, along with producer Steve. This is The Crossing, where the music meets memories. We're not sure what is more famous, the Bully Burgers or the Sirene. Of course, we're talking about the Dawsonville Pooh Room, located on Bill Elliott Street in Dawsonville. Whether you want to stop by for a game of pool or enjoy one of those world-famous Bully Burgers, be sure to take a gander at all the photos and news clippings from racing history in Dawson County. From dirt tracks to super speedways, it's all captured on the walls of the pool room. Dine or take out, that's a Dawsonville pool room where the siren sounds on every Elliott win. You probably haven't checked the propane tank lately. It's when the pilot light goes out that you finally notice, right? And now you're in a bind. 
Who do you call? Mills Fuel Service right now. Mills Fuel has provided North Georgia with fast, courteous service and clean propane for over 50 years. So don't let the tank hit rock bottom. Call Mills today, 706-265-3394. Three locations to serve you coming Dawsonville and Dahlonega online at millsfuelservice.com. Buell Martin Barbershop is your one-stop barber for all your men's grooming needs. Stop in for that Buell special. You'll get a straight razor shave and a haircut topped off with your choice of either witch hazel or vitalis. And for all you pickers out there, Buell stock some strings and picks for them guitars and banjos. That's Bill Martin Barbershop on Highway 9 in South Coal Mountain. If you see Piedmont, you done gone too far. Cherry berry wine Makes my head start All right, so that was Cherry Berry Wine, Mr. Charlie McCoy. Number 99 on the chart. Bringing the, bringing the hit, 99. Now, Charlie, <laughs> I, I want to I go back a little bit to the, the early 60s. Here it is. You're living in Nashville at the time. You're living with a, living with a songwriter. What was, that, what was that lifestyle like, um, you know, doing session work and, and hanging out with a bunch of artistic people? What was life like that in, in, then in the, in the early 60s in Nashville? It was very cool. It was the t- it was a relatively small community, the music community. Mm-hmm. I mean, s- songwriters could walk in off the street and play songs for record producers. You know, I mean, now it's so corporate. Now it's like, oh, have your people call my people. Yeah, it, it's that kind of thing. But it was a, everybody knew everybody, and uh, there was so much energy. And and consider. Owen and Chet each had about 20 artists apiece, and most of them were in the charts all the time. I mean, it was incredible what was going on there. And mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of it has to do with those early Nashville A-team musicians. They were so good. So and, you, f- you, you know, fall so in with efficient. the A-team. You're, you're in with them now, and you're starting recording, what, four sessions a day somewhere in there? Average... Well, I, I got up to that, yeah. Uh, 1961, I had my first session with Ann Margaret, and then uh, then Orbison, and then you know that it started to it started to roll, started to roll. So now, uh, now between between sessions and 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 at night, was there any gigging or anything like that? Playing any of the oh, it's the old Hawks? Nashville? Well, I had the uh, I had that band with Wayne Moss and Kenny Buttry. Yeah, uh, from 1961 to 1967, and uh, we would play uh, fraternity parties at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. We drive up to Fort Campbell and play NCO Club, and in the spring we'd play an occasional high school prom. You know that that kind of stuff. So take me through a day of being a studio musician from the time you get up until the end of your day what what would that entail well uh when when the city really got busy the president of the musicians union uh brought in a, a plan to have standard starting times for sessions so <laughs> sessions 
most all of them at that time started at either 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 6 p.m., or 10 p.m. Now, a lot of people didn't record at 10 p.m. because it was they had to pay time and a half. Yeah. Sessions lasted three hours. That's the union deal, three hours. The big difference in Nashville as a recording center and, say, Muscle Shoals, Memphis, or Motown is that at those other three places, they don't use a clock. That's right. But we use a clock here, and it's like it's it, it was uh, closely monitored, and uh, plus because he was able to keep Nashville studio work all unionized. All of us who stayed there for a while all have a pension, you know. Mm-hmm. If you're out if you're out working the road touring. You're not getting a pension, I can promise you that. Plus, you were waving at all those boys on the bus as they pulled out, heading out, or you was going home to get in your bed every night. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a morning session would start at 10, and if you had a, a 10 and a 2 in the afternoon, in between, you had a one hour to go find some lunch, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple of uh, restaurants down by Music Row that uh, you could – Every lunch hour or dinner hour, you could go in there and spot a bunch of musicians in there. So, in during that time, in the in the in the Opry was uh, popping as well, right? Yeah, but I wasn't working the Opry any not not back then. Uh, I didn't work the Opry until uh, you know until like ten years later. Uh, after you know, I I, I did uh, Cadence Records. They quit because uh, they they had this big comedy album about the Kennedy family, and it was a huge success, like six million copies or something. And the boss of Cadence, named Archie Blyer, decided that this was his ticket out of the business. He'd been in the music business for a long, long time, and he was tired. He wanted to travel and uh, just relax, so... He called me and said, I'm closing the label. I'm very sorry. I said, hey, don't don't worry about it. Thanks for the opportunity. But I'm doing studio work, and that's what I want to do. And then Fred Foster from Monument Records, about a year later, asked me to come out to his office, and he said, I want you to make some records. Mm-hmm. And I said, doing what? <laughs> he said, I don't know. Just go be creative. And most of what I did early was kind of rock and roll with that band I had. And uh, we made records for eight years that we couldn't give away. But and you had a ball. Year, I would go to Fred and say, "Fred, it's not working." And he was, and he said to me, "And you'll never hear this, probably with any other record producer." He said, "Keep looking, you'll find it." Just be creative. <laughs> for eight years. I don't and think then, uh, Chet. He ever. He never told Waylon that, did he? No. <laughs> be but creative. Then, uh, hey, in this day and time, if they give you eight months, you'd be lucky, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so 1971, bang, we hit with this instrumental. Today I'm sort of loving you again. And it, uh, you know, it was a big hit. Grammy, CMA, ACM. You know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden now... I am an artist. That's right. Yeah. And 
Now, did that start the tidal wave of like, I know like Floyd Kramer would have an instrumental album out. Boots Randolph would have one out. Danny Davis and the Nashville Brass. They were all doing them at the time after that then, right? Well, yeah, and back in that day, uh, radio would play instrumentals. You know, I, I was on the same label with Boots Randolph, and uh, Yakety Sax was a big hit, of course. And, of course, Last Date was the biggest instrumental ever recorded in Nashville. That's for sure. Kind of took Floyd out of the studio after that, but as far as being a session musician, didn't it? Because he got busy then. Yeah, well, him and, uh, well, he was he was already working around the clock, you know. Those 18 guys were, they were doing 15, 20 sessions a week, almost every week, you know. And uh, Floyd was very busy. But then when his solo career took off, uh, eventually he kind of backed out of it. And uh, him and Chet started touring. Him, Chet, and Boots started the tour. And then... Uh... <laughs> Pig Robbins kind of came in and became the uh, A-team uh, piano player at the time after that, right? Absolutely. And uh, he, to, for me, he's the greatest. Uh, he, he's uh, an amazing, amazing musician. And in the days when I was doing between three and 400 sessions a year, he was probably doing 400. I'm not kidding you. And, you know, he, he played on so many records that, his what he played was so important like behind closed doors everyone thinks oh that was charlie rich no no that was pig playing that you know mm -hmm. and there's so many records like that that it's him doing it and, and and it's you know he he's about the best session guy i've ever known and of course you know he's blind yes but sir. he was one of those people that you play the song for him once and he's got it and now, with all that studio work that you're doing, you never really had to go on the road much, I guess, huh? No, I didn't have to go. Uh, but the second half of my career, when the records were going well, I chose to go out some. Yeah. But that gave you the opportunity still to kind of have a bit of a personal life, too. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's uh, Nashville's such a great community, and uh, there are many, many people many people now here that are doing studio work, you know, and, uh, and it's, uh, finally the city understood what a studio musician was. Uh, I know my mother, it took her forever to understand. I'd call her up and say, Hey, I'm recording with Roy Orbison, you know, and then <laughs> a, month, a month later we'd talk and I say, I'm recording with Conway Twitty. And she'd say, I thought you were in Roy Orbison's band. <laughs> you know, the, the concept of a freelance studio musician didn't ring with people. While you're on that role, give us a, a couple of those big hits that you played on with those studio guys, uh, A-Team. Uh, he Stopped Loving Her Today, George Jones. The greatest love song ever written. Uh, Old Dogs, Children, and Watermelon Wine. Oh, yeah. Tom T. Hall. Delta Dawn. Tanya Tucker. Mm. Take This Job and Shove It. Johnny <laughs> Paycheck. Uh, I Was Country When Country Wasn't Cool. Barbara Mandrell. Uh, th those are some of the, the, the main biggest ones that I played harmonica on. 
Now, in the um, in the also in the late '60s, you got introduced to um, Bob Dylan, and well, see the impact that he had on Nashville. Oh, he had a huge impact. Uh, I started leading sessions for a songwriter from Texas named Bob Johnston, who's who who wrote for the Elvis Presley Music Group, and he was trying to get his songs in Elvis movies. With the songs that didn't get in the movies, he would pitch around to other record labels. Well, you're talking about a great story. This guy goes to New York and he's pitching his songs, and the head of A&R for Columbia Records says to him, God, these demos are great. Where did you record these? And he said, in Nashville. And he said, now this, he said, opened the door. He said, did you produce these? And Bob Johnston he he saw an opening and he said, uh, yes. <laughs> and he said, uh, you think you'd like to be a record producer? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> well, we have an artist that's on the last session of her contract. And if we don't cut something on her that hits, we're going to drop her from the label. And he said, what's her name? And they said, Patty Page. <laughs> so he calls his friends of the Elvis Presley group in L.A., and they found a movie that had a theme that had needed to be recorded. So he brought Patty Page to Nashville, and we recorded the song Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And it became a fair-sized hit for Patty Page. Uh-huh. And saved her, saved her, her contract with Columbia for a while. And then, so Columbia thinks they found their knight in shining armor. And they asked him, uh, you think you'd like to try to record Bob Dylan? Yes. So he moved to New York and he told me, if you ever come to New York, call me. I'll get you Broadway theater tickets. Okay. So 1964, I go to New York to the World's Fair. And I call him and I said, hey, I'm in town. How about my tickets? He said, no problem. Hey, would you come over to Columbia Studio this afternoon? I'd like for you to meet Bob Dylan. I said, okay. So I go over and introduce me to Dylan, and Dylan says, I'm getting ready to do a song. Why don't you get that extra guitar and play along? Uh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And uh, we did a song called Desolation Row that was in the uh, album called Highway 61 Revisited. And so, you know, I played on that song. 11 minutes long, I was playing guitar. And then uh, about, oh, three months later, Bob Johnson calls me and he said, book the same musicians I used to do my demos. Dylan's coming to Nashville. So 1965, I think it was, he came to do Blonde on Blonde. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it, the first day was great because... We were booked at two o'clock. His flight was late. He didn't show up till six. He hadn't finished writing the first song yet. And so he they said, you guys just hang loose. Whenever we're ready, we'll go. 4 a.m. the next morning, <laughs> we started recording a 14-minute song, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. On tape. Yeah. And <laughs> That's think hard about... To we've been up all this time trying to stay awake, you know, because you know 
the minute I pay, I go to sleep, they're going to say, okay, let's go now. Yep. So everybody, we, we've been playing ping pong. We've been telling jokes, you know, I mean, drinking coffee. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, we did Blonde on Blonde. And after that album was released, man, the floodgates opened for folk rock artists. It's incredible. The Birds, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Buffy St. Marie, Joan Baez, uh, Dan Fogelberg, Leonard Cohen. I mean, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and this really expanded the music in Nashville because all of a sudden there was a need. There was more work, more work than the A-team could ever do. And new studios. And it was it was really something. The exposure that you, that, I mean, that you had the blessed to have, and the people that you got to uh, to perform with. Was there anyone that, besides, of course, a twenty year old Ann Margaret, that <laughs> that um, that just really shook you up to be able to meet? I mean, you met, of course, you performed with Elvis Presley. Yeah, Elvis was pretty cool. Uh, I was booked to play on the soundtrack of the movie Harem Scarum. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, was one of his worst movies, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the music anyway, was good. <laughs> the, the movie company changed the dates of the soundtrack recording. Uh-huh. And all of his guys that normally played with him were already booked with somebody else. Well, in Nashville, you don't cancel out on one artist to go play with another. You just don't do it. You know, it's kind of an unwritten law. So, they... Uh, the, the, these movie people figured, oh, those guys will, they'll, whatever they're doing, they'll drop it for Elvis. Now, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah. They were wrong. So, uh, Scotty Moore, uh, he said, don't worry about it. This town's full of great musicians. And he booked a, an alternative band for Elvis. And, and of course, we were all thrilled to be there and wondered how this was going to go. He walked in the door. He walked right to every musician, shook their hands, and said, thank you for helping me. And from that minute on, you know, it was like, yeah, yeah, man, this is cool. Just genuine, huh? Great, just really great. I worked with him, counting soundtracks, 12 albums. And he couldn't have been any nicer. That is wonderful to hear. Now, I've heard the story, and I want you to tell it to our listeners, too, about uh, Elvis's entourage is called the Memphis Mafia and the... Uh, Pickle incident. Okay, so so this Memphis Mafia bunch, uh, while we were recording, they would be back in other offices of RCA Studio B. I don't know, shooting dice or whatever they do. And it was like the minute the playback came, all of a sudden, all these guys are in the control room, standing around, grooving to the music. You know, oh, that's great, Elvis. That's great, Elvis. You know, it's like, it was almost cartoonish, you know. So, Elvis, he liked to sleep all day and work late at night. So, they started bringing in food for us at at about 9 p.m. Yeah. So, one night, we're in this food line, and there was, you know, burgers and fries, and, and there was this big uh, Dixie cup full of kosher dill slices, <laughs> and... The drummer, I'll never forget, it was Jerry Kerrigan. He reached over to pull one of these out, and from out of nowhere, this hand 
come out of and grabbed him by the wrist and said, those are Elvis's pickles. <laughs> Don't get the King's pickles. Don't mess with the King's pickles. Elvis would have given every one of them to him. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Folks, we're just skimming the top of the surface here. We're going to take another quick break. We're going to get a word from our sponsors. You're listening to the crossing where the music meets the memories Cold Mountain Cal, along with brother Christopher Cheeto Cheatham, the good doctor, Steve Thompson, our producer, and our very special guest tonight, Country Music Hall of Famer, Charlie McCoy. We'll be right back after a word from these sponsors. He kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Transforming the way you listen to sports Yep, we've covered all of it At least since 1978, 79, 80, 81, 82 Okay, you get the point We've got it covered The North Georgia Sports League Go ahead like us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Keyword search, North Georgia Sports Link. Thank you for calling Village Cinema. Showing this week is Smokey and the Bandit, starring Mark Reynolds. Showtimes are 7 to 9 p.m. And Sundays, 3, 5, 7, and 9. Village Cinema, next to Gigi's in Lanier Village Shopping Center. 887-8855 for movies and showtimes. Thank you. Sun's out, plows out, folks. Time to get your gardens planted. And when you need your planting supplies, T.R. Thomas Mill in Coal Mountain is the place you need to go. Come in and get your seeds for your corn, peas, turnips, and beans. We got half runners and full runners. Don't forget, you gotta have some new enter for fertilizer. T.R. Thomas Mill. Hey! We're in Coal Mountain, Spot Road, USA, across from Jan's Jeans. Crossing, where the music meets memories, with our special guest tonight, Chris, Charlie McCoy. What a uh, pleasure it's been to have you on here tonight, Charlie. Hey, thanks. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, these are great memories for me, too. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I, I look back on my career and it's like a fairy tale. You know, oh, it really we, is. 
We love picking your brain, that's for sure. Hey, I want to ask you right quick about uh, a couple notes I had jotted down. I got three studios written down here, Studio B, The Quonset Hut, and Bradley's Barn. If you could give me your thoughts on those three right quick. Well, in the beginning, uh, the the Quonset Hut and Studio B, when I broke in, those were about the only two going, and they were busy around the clock. Well, not, no, because it was the A-team doing most of the sessions, and you know, if, if they had a morning session at Quonset Hut and an afternoon session at RCA, if they went overtime on the morning one, then the one at RCA started late. That's just the way it was. Uh, in Owen, uh, along the way, decided to sell the Quonset Hut, finally, and he went out in the country, uh, 20 miles out, to the town called Mount Juliet, and built the barn, Bradley's Barn. And, uh, and that was a, back then, you know, uh, we didn't have the interstates yet. And if you had an afternoon session on music row and a six o'clock out at the barn, buddy, that was a, that was a tough commute. I can tell you. Do you have the gravel flying when you turn in that parking lot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And then, uh, then the, the, the Quonset hut, uh, was sold to Columbia records and, uh, they owned it like when Dylan recorded there. And, uh, at, of course, Studio B at the Quonset Hut, the Quonset Hut, it kind of stayed the way it always was, and all the country artists recorded there. Well, because it was booked around the clock, Columbia Records thought, let's build another room, man. We can book it out, too. Well, they built Studio A, and nobody would use it. Uh, the country people, you know, the Music people are superstitious, right? Man, I, we're cutting all the hits in B. I want to, I want to go there, right? And but so when Dylan, when he brought Dylan to town, Studio A was wide open for him to block book it for the whole week, with nobody else in and out. So that became Bob Johnson's studio of choice. That's where we did Blonde on Blonde, Jawasi Harding, Nashville Skyline, Self Portrait. Uh, I did the boxer, Simon and Garfunkel there. Uh, I played with Peter, Paul and Mary there, Manhattan transfer there. Uh, you know, so that became, that, that studio was like, especially for those, uh, big, uh, folk rock kind of projects. Now, which one was your favorite studio as far as your sound and just your feeling the most comfortable with and stuff? Which one did you like the best? Quonset Hut. Really? Yeah, I really did. Uh, I mean, but RCAB was a close second. You know, I mean, that's where my first session was, was RCAB. But the Quonset Hut is where I watched Brenda Lee record that that session, you know. But I, I, I just, I really loved the Quonset Hut, the way it sounded and the way it felt. Because, you know, back in those days, studios didn't even own headphones. So we had to listen to each other. Uh, and everyone played very soft. And that was the key to what we did because we were making the record, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Mono and two track. And if one guy messed up really bad, everybody had to do it again. And nobody wanted to be that guy. So so amongst all this studio work and albums and everything that you put out, a little show called Hee Haw comes to town. Yep. How did, was- how did you get hooked up with them? I, I, 
Calvin and I actually done a podcast on string bean. And uh, oh, yeah. we did a, and, yeah, it was a, uh, that was probably one of our more interesting ones we've done. That, that was a, that was a deep dive for real, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but tell us, tell us, I guess how, how, how he came into your life or you came well, into the he- life of he They were in, they were in about their sixth year and I got called to come and play on two songs with Ray Charles. Me and the drummer, Kenny Buttry, were called in to play with Ray Charles. So we went down, and it was done at that time at a local TV station mm-hmm. in Nashville, uh, the CBS affiliate, Channel 5. So uh, we went down and played the show. At the end of the show, the music director said, Hey, listen, uh, Sam Lavello, who was our producer, uh, he'd like for you to come in his office he wants to have a word with you before you go and i said okay so i go in his office and he said uh we'd like for you to consider being a part of our band and you know i was working a lot of sessions that day and i said man i don't know uh i am really busy these days and he said well you know the band only works about eight days a month uh and sometimes it's only a half a day uh he said Think about it. Think about giving it a try. Well, I had enjoyed myself there that day so much because, you know, man, you're surrounded by legends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy Clark, Buck Owens, uh, Grandpa Jones, Minnie Pearl, and they were all really into it, and they were, you know, so nice. And So I decided, eh, I think I'll, I'll try it one half season, you know. So I did. I Year seven, I'd go down there and play the first half season and it was so much fun but I kept thinking you know because a couple times I had I told him if I have a big session I'm gonna have to bail on you you know at he and he said okay we understand that but it seemed that the time was like it never seemed to conflict <laughs> which I thought was maybe this is a sign you know uh-huh. so then uh, at the end of that shoot he called me in his office and he said, we'd like for you to consider being band leader. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll try it. So I, th- I spent the next half season as band leader. At the end of that one, he calls me in his office and he said, listen, uh, Richie's leaving the show. He's going to marry Tammy Wynette. Would you be the music director? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this this may be really time consuming. But then I thought about it, and you know what? Uh, the music director doesn't have a whole lot to do <laughs> other than you know the the house band and helping the helping the audio guy with the mixes because he Hall was recorded direct to videotape. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yes, it, it was like making a record in the old days, you know. So uh, there was no repair, fix, mixing. There wasn't any of that. What you hear is what you got. Yeah. You know? And so uh, I, it would. It always. Uh, it, I helped the uh, audio guy a lot, a lot of times because I would get the music ahead of time, so I knew what was coming, and the audio guy did not. 
So I could say, okay, we got a fiddle, going to play a solo here, you know, stuff like that, you know. So I loved it so much, I stayed until the end of the, the show, which was, and oh, and uh, in about season 10, we moved out to Opryland, and it, to the studio back behind the Opry house. Uh-huh. It was fantastic. All of a sudden, hey, parking places, <laughs> rooms, you know. Paved parking places. And uh, so it, the show lasted. 24 years. I'm still trying to get over Richie quitting the quitting the gig just because he married Tammy Wynette. <laughs> was he just going to stay at home and pick up the groceries or they're going to no, be a full-time was, job? <laughs> no, he was traveling with her and uh, acting the road manager, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. at this point in time, we got a little special surprise for you. Are Do you remember a guy, he's a musician, I know you know him, uh, he's played with everybody. Uh, Paul Martin. Yeah. Plays with Marty Stewart, and he played with uh, Exile and all those groups. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, we've had him on the show, and we interviewed him, and I was talking to him yesterday, and I told him you were going to be on. So uh, he said, man, I got some fond memories of him. I said, really? He said, I'll send them to you. So we're going to play that right now for you and let you take a listen to that. I've always been a Charlie McCoy fan. From the time I was old enough to play music, I was totally aware of what Charlie had already done as a harmonica player, but also all the stuff that he did as an organ player, horn player, guitar player, so many things. And when I first went on the road after I left college in the late 80s, um, my first road gig was with a fellow by the name of Billy Joe Royal. And I ended up playing keyboards for Billy. And while I was working with him, we taped an episode of Hee Haw. Well, Billy's tunes at that time had horn parts in them. Well, he didn't carry a horn section, so being the keyword player, I had worked really, really hard trying to come up with sounds that would carry and, you know, hopefully be convincing. So when we did the taping of Hee Haw that day, we got done, we'd done our two songs, I was starting to get ready to pack up my gear, and Charlie came onto the set. Of course, I knew he was the music director, but I didn't expect to see him that day. So it was pretty neat to just see Charlie in any way. And he walks right over to my rig and starts studying my gear, and he's you know looking at what I'm using, asking me what synthesizers and samplers, things I had in my rack. And he said, that's the best horn sound I've ever heard come out of a keyboard. Well, that made my life because knowing his background, the fact that he made a point to come out and check out what I was doing, any musician will tell you when your heroes come and check out what you're doing, uh, it's quite a compliment. And uh, that was really one of the proud moments for me. Even to this day, I still love to think about that one day. What a memory. <laughs> How about that? Did we pull that out of left field or what? <laughs> yeah, I'll say. I'll say. Hey, but you know, I love, I love to see young musicians come in and be successful. I, I really do. That's that's very cool. We've enjoyed following Paul. Uh, we kind of got, I, and me personally, kind of got turned on to him whenever he was a superlative. And uh, now getting to see him uh, go out and, and perform music with uh, his family and and um, kind of was a good lead in. Your, your family's kind of got involved with your career as well. I've had this, some of my, uh, my kids have, performed on my album on an album you know and uh i have a granddaughter who's done three album covers for me and uh i have another granddaughter who sang on an album you know my, my son is man he he's a talent he he lives in greenville south carolina 
He's a computer IT guy. Yeah. Five years ago, he joined a rock band. <laughs> uh, they play weekends, you know, in around the Greenville, Spartanburg area. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what a fine musician he was. <laughs> That's awesome. He plays guitar, bass, keyboard, sings third-part harmony, and uh, really has it together. And one New Year's Eve, about four years ago, New Year's Eve, I went down there and sit in with his band. <laughs> Getting back with the... Uh the hee-haw thing we do have a uh, connection with you on that because junior samples is from the same hometown that we're at here in Cumming, georgia yeah junior was he was quite a guy and uh i don't remember how many seasons he was there but that was in that from what i gather that wasn't much of an act <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was clever the way they used him i thought yeah <laughs> so one final thing i want to talk about uh you were talking about with the a-team how it, it didn't matter to you guys if you were doing a major superstar or somebody that had just came in a, a zero hit wonder, as they call them, not even a one hit wonder. Y'all treated every one of them just like they were the same. And it, you know, that just echoes just talking to you. Heck, we feel like we've known y'all of our lives tonight. To just, that, yeah. That's just now, a good rule for life. Treat everybody like that all the time. Those are, that's one of the valuable things that they taught me. And, and, the other one was this, and this is the this is the most important for a, a guy playing behind singers. They said, "Here's the way we look at it: the singer and the song are the picture; we are the frame." There you go. Our job is to frame the picture, not to uh, distract from it. You kind of got a little reprimanded that one time too from a producer when you. Thought you were smelling yourself a little bit when you well, thought you was young. And one of my heroes, Grady Martin, took me outside. Oh, was it Grady? <laughs> scolded me and told me I was playing too much. And he yeah. was right. Yeah. He was right. Yeah. <laughs> and that right that and from that moment on, I said, you know what? From now on, less is more. And you listen to He Stopped Loving Her Today. That's about as less as you can get and play on a record. Well, Cal, Cal and I, we listened to that on the way to the studio uh, tonight. And um, oh, I'll never listen to that song again the same. <laughs> the second verse just stole the whole song, I thought. Yeah, for real. Well, Charlie, um, it's um, it's it's been amazing to hear, hear your story. What a, a, a heck of a career that was kicked off with 50 cents in a box top. Yeah, it, it's just been amazing. I, I've, I've been so blessed, uh, much more than I ever deserved. And, uh, you know, I've done what I love to do my whole life. I've played with amazing people. And uh, I'll be 80 next year. But I am I'm in very good health, and I'm still excited about music. Well, we really, really appreciate having you. Oh, and you've got your own website, so plug that. CharlieMcCoy.com. You got there books. You can find my 43 albums, one EP, one instructional DVD, and one autobiography. Awesome. I tell you what, when this pandemic's over, me and Chris and uh, producer Steve, we're going to ride up there and we'll go through your whole box set, one song at a time, one night, and just talk all <laughs> night long. Hey, well, it, y'all come up here and uh, I'll take you through the Hall of Fame guided tour and studio b tour too hey you know we're gonna hold you to that if we get up there i'm serious (laughs) hey we'll buy breakfast if we'll swap out we'll buy breakfast (laughs) charlie mccoy folks y'all check him out check out his website charlie once again thank you for joining us tonight 
Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Y'all be safe down there. You too, buddy. Yes, Stay sir. healthy. Take care. God bless you. Boom. And just like that. Just like that. Charlie's gone. We roll up in here with a Grammy Award winner. Seven-time nominee, by the way. Charlie McCoy. Country Music Hall of Fame. Country Music Hall of Fame. Our show. Our show. And we never doing? even we never even touched half of the stuff we could have had with him. He would have we could have we got to get another get him on again. Well, we tried, folks. That's, that's why you listen to this show because you never know <laughs> <laughs> when we're going to pull a rabbit out of our hat and pull something like this. So, mm-hmm. thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you for your patronage, listening to all of our shows. Thank you for all the good comments we get on Facebook. We're just so happy to be here, as Minnie Pearl used to say. With that. The good doctor, Steve Thompson, please, sir, take us to the house. It is time to go home. The Crossing, where music meets memories, is recorded at Due South Productions, high atop the northeast tower of Pete's Castle in South Coal Mountain, Georgia, and is recorded and mixed by Steve Thomason, hosted by Coal Mountain Cal Hurd and Chris Cheatham. Theme music, written, performed, and recorded by Wendell Cox. The Crossing is a production of Roadhog Music and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Due South Productions or at least a text message from Coal Mountain Cal's Razor Phone. That'll work too. All rights reserved. All right, we'll catch you next time right here on The Crossing.